change the world together. Welcome to the Snapcast, the podcast for all nonprofit professionals, bringing you interviews and amazing ideas for nonprofit leaders. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Nonprofit Snapcast. I'm your host, Mickey Desai. I am very happy today to be speaking with Rania Moncarios, who is the CEO of Crime Stoppers of Houston, and she's also the host of the Balanced Voice podcast. Rania, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm I'm very happy we finally get to do this. Uh, I know we've had this appointment on the books for quite some time, but first I wanted to ask you, uh, what is the Balanced Voice podcast? So the Balanced Voice podcast really came out of just observing what was happening in 2020. And for us at Crime Stoppers of Houston and as a public safety nonprofit, it was a very it was a very packed year. Uh, criminal justice reform has been sweeping this country with very, very um, deep rooted questions at the base of it. Uh, we had the death of George Floyd, followed by the defund police movement, followed by really complex questions about race in America. You had politics. People had, have never been so divided. And I and I was fortunate enough to be contacted by a, a bunch of people that said, Rania, you know, you, you're running an organization that maybe quite honestly has been overlooked. We've been around for 40 years maybe quite honestly has been overlooked for a, for a period of time, but you're, you're sitting at the hub of like every issue we're talking about this year from public safety to law enforcement, to community policing, to community engagement, um, where our organization is very active in the schools from kindergarten on talking to kids about so many different things. So, you know, we're also a social service group and they said, uh, but we've been sort of watching you guys and you're you're spitting out solution after solution. You're not taking sides. And I think it might be nice for you guys to think of doing a podcast. And, and at first they said, you know, true crime, those are the number one podcasts and you guys deal with crime issues and, and cases every day. I said, I don't want to do a true crime podcast. <laughs> I'm not an investigative journalist. I, you know, that requires a lot of team, you know, that that's a different beast. I said, but I can do one on issues where, you know, we discuss tough issues, but we, we offer a balanced way of discussing tough issues. And, uh, you know, not like a, a left-wing person and a right-wing person fighting on a podcast, but just difficult conversations where we offer solutions and we, we talk about them in a fair manner. And so, we launched the Balanced Voice podcast, and it's been wonderful. We're in season two. We we booked so many people quickly. Uh, we had had Greg Kelly from Showtime's Outcry, who was wrongfully convicted of sexual assault of a child. So he served um, five years in prison, but was one of the few people exonerated in the state of Texas. He was exonerated last year. Um, you know, so we talked about wrongful conviction. We've had Selma Awad, who was a former editor in chief of Harper's Bazaar Arabia, talking about women globally and, you know, what asking questions like whether the Me Too movement here affects women's issues and whether it be the Middle East or Europe. Uh, we've had John Quinones with ABC's What Would You Do talking about his life growing up in Texas um, to in a poor neighborhood to poor immigrant parents and making his way up to being this internationally acclaimed news journalist. Um, we, we've just had so many incredible, we had Governor Abbott on talking about public safety across the state of Texas uh, and, and the reach is just enormous. And so we're thrilled to do it and we'll keep doing it and, and hope people will follow along for the conversation. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, to my listening audience, the only reason I haven't checked this out already is because I just learned about it today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check it out. 
<laughs> but uh, but yeah, I can't wait to check it out now. It sounds really, really intriguing. And uh, and especially if you're able to host those hard conversations, I think it's very hard to to get to a place where you can actually have hard conversations. I think they they tend to make people uncomfortable. And if you're able to successfully carry those out, man, more power to you. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. They do make people uncomfortable, but they're important to have. Yeah, no, I, yeah. And I, I think that's right. I think we have to have more of those difficult conversations these days more than ever. Um, and, uh, but, but congratulations to you. If I can ever help you in that endeavor, please don't hesitate to call. <laughs> oh, thank you. We will call. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk about Crime Stoppers. How did you get, how did, did you found the organization? No, uh, no, I'm not. Thankfully, I'm not old enough yet to have founded the organization. <laughs> it was founded in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the late 70s by a police officer dealing with a horrific murder, um, knew somebody somewhere, knew something, but just had no leads. And he decided to put word out that they were going to um, accept tips anonymously and offer a cash reward if a tip led to the solving, the identification of the suspect or the solving of the crime right. um, location of the suspect. And he solved that case within 24 to 48 hours after, you know, many days of having nothing. Wow. And so eventually the concept took off. It became an, it became an actual program in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And then um, it was brought to Houston in the early 80s during this horrendous crime spike. And for the longest time, it's just a tip line. You know, call this number anonymously. We'll never know who you are. You'll get a cash reward. Help us solve these cases. But um, eventually it's grown to be so much more. And we do have that. Of course, we still have that famous tip line. And it's very, very yeah. successful. Yeah. But we are boots on the ground. We're in the schools. We're talking to kids about all the issues they deal with from cyber stalking, cyber bullying, suicidal ideation, school violence, gang activity, um, active shooters, drugs, synthetic drugs, bullying. All, I mean, everything you can think of to... Um, you know, in the community dealing with issues from human trafficking to home invasions, bank robbery, identity theft, COVID scams. We're talking about criminal justice reform. And we we really do animal cruelty, elder abuse. We cover it all, domestic violence. And, and it's always with the hope of education, um, solving crime, and offering solutions. So whether it's legislation that needs to be addressed, we passed legislation last year or the year before on camps across America, recognizing that you can send your kid to a sleepaway camp almost in any city across this country. And there's, you know, a very high chance the camp has not even done background checks yep. on any of the people taking care of your children. Um, the camps are operated in a very different way. And so we, we broke the story on that uh, two years ago nationally and have changed the laws in Texas and are working to do so in Connecticut and other states. And it's just incredible work. And I'm very proud to to lead the, an organization that bridges the gaps between public safety, the community, uh, media, and law enforcement. Yeah. I, I, just amazing. I'm sitting here and mind boggled by the scope of everything that you covered. And before we get into these issues of nonprofit management, I have to ask, does each individual type of crime require its own individual type of uh, of intervention or at least safety concerns? I mean, I, I know that's a silly question and I'm, I'm asking a silly question on purpose though, because I think it's worth it talking about. Yeah, no, you would be surprised on the one hand, they're so similar. And on the other hand, they're so vastly different and they require their own conversations, even though a lot of the principles, ideas, characteristics overlap. Um, but sometimes you, you don't, there's something about public safety. People inherently, you know, you're intrigued if you drive down the street and there's a car accident, you're going to watch true crime shows. But when you talk about public safety in a way that actually specifically can touch your life, 
most people turn the page. They kind of turn it off. They don't want to hear about it, especially women. Um, so you you miss it. If we're talking about um, governing principles around uh, domestic violence, it's like, oh God, I don't I don't want to know. That's not my story. I, I don't want to know that. But they may be the same when you talk about teen dating violence and you may need to know because you have kids and there might be signs you're, you're missing. So we have to like repeat the whole thing yeah. because we have to understand that not many people will plug into the other conversations because they, they inherently put up walls around them. Yep. No, I think that's right. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I volunteer my time with an organization called Usagi Medical Group, which does a little bit of education on on date rape and stuff like that. And and you're you're yeah, I'm sitting here nodding the entire time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. It's it's like a, it's a whole different form of psychology, and um, it's just that's how inher- inherently people respond to things that scare them. And yeah. we keep saying public safety is not scary. It's no different than studying like anti-aging lotion or the best foods for your body. It's yep. just about keeping yourself safe proactively. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's a good way to put it. So, so speaking of scary things that are good to think about proactively, let's talk about fundraising. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Hardest thing in the world right now. <laughs> Uh, one of the first points you made in our notes was uh, uh, the importance of fundraising and the need for effective messaging and marketing. Um, but why is fundraising the hardest thing in the world right now? Is it is it a COVID thing or is it something else? Yeah, it, for us, well, for us specifically, for, well, for all nonprofits, I'll, I'll start there, obviously COVID. I mean, we can't have events where we gather. We used to do a luncheon and a gala that's all been canceled. Um, it's very hard to fundraise through like come to a Zoom session and even, you know, pay $10 to come to a Zoom session. I mean, it's just it's just a completely different world. Um, and then I think for us, what's really strange and part of the reason we thought about launching this podcast is for the first time ever, at least that I know of, public safety has inherently become a political issue. So you know, I'll get calls from people that say, I really, really liked your post, but I didn't want to like it. I was afraid I'd get in trouble at work or people would think it was part. And I'm like, but we're only talking about protecting kids from being victims of trafficking. Like, how is that political? Right. Um, right. But it, it's become very, very political. So not only do people say like, oh, God, COVID, I've lost my job or I don't have the extra funds or I there's no even event to attend to give you donations. So you're kind of not on my radar. There's this whole added layer of is crime prevention even now a political issue? And, you know, I'll tell you, we just try to push things out on our social media platforms and we'll get denied because they'll be called um, too political. And it's really we're not talking about COVID. We're not talking about politics. We're talking about how to keep your kids safe online, and right, right. it's 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 astonishing. It's shocking. I, I I'm I think if anything is giving me knots in my stomach right now, it's it's that whole thing. And so getting to the donor has been difficult. It's been really 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 hard. So I have to ask, and we may selectively delete this later, but why do you think it has gotten so political? Why are why are these common sense issues related to just plain old safety suddenly political? I don't know, but a a part of it has become somewhere along the lines, we attached anything crime related to race. And this is just my observation. And I think that in and of itself is highly racist. Um, To assume that all crime has a racial tie is ridiculous. We see people committing crimes from every walk of life, every 
um, race background, every religious background, every socioeconomic background, from you know highly educated individuals to really uneducated. I mean, it is just horrific to me. But somehow mainstream has in almost like branded anything related to crime as being inherently racial or racist. And it's just, even that branding is racist, but we've not, we've not gone a step further to recognize that that branding itself is racist. Right. Right. So how do you make sure you're being effective with your messaging and your marketing? So we're being very creative. I mean, we are, um, one, we're emailing a lot. I'm picking up the phone a lot. Um, one of the things I've always said early on that nonprofits really need to do is understand their audience. And for Crime Stoppers, for the longest time, you know, when we would go out in the community, we're talking, we're trying to get tipsters to call us with anonymous, you know, anonymously with information to help law enforcement solve these really complex cases. But the but the group never made a distinction that, you know, your tipster is different than your donor. And so we had to create a whole new type of messaging for our donors and bridge the gap between our services and the interests of our donors. And so I think we've done that very successfully. We know who our donors are. We know who our community is. We know what our community needs are. And we, we know that our programming is filling a lot of those gaps. Um, it's just being able to effectively communicate that. So I'm calling, I'm texting, I'm emailing, um, I'm posting a lot on social media, praying it gets through. We're being very creative in digital content. Um, we're very creative in our media engagement um, and you know, just continually thinking outside the box to get the message out there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, do you think that the personal calls are more effective than the than the social media game? I'm 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 hearing certain debates on which approach is better. It it is. People will say that it's more effective, but I think it's very much depends on personalities. I am. Um, I feel very close to the people that give to us, and so when I call them, it's instantly very awkward for me to make it about fundraising, and it just becomes awkward. And so I, I think it really depends on the leadership and what works best for them. Certainly donors will say, you know, it's nice to get a call, a personal call and say, look, here's what we're going through. This is why we need this funding. We understand times are tough for all, but if you would consider us, please do. Um, Other donors say, I don't like to get those calls because it puts me in a really awkward position um, and somewhat on the spot. And so it's, I, I've heard it both ways. And I think at the end of the day, what really the secret sauce or secret recipe to success is, is the, is the requester for me, whether it's myself or our d- development director to understand our personalities and what our relationships are with the, with the donor specifically and craft a, a unique plan with each person. And that's ultimately what we've been doing. And you can say that stewardship is, in fact, simply knowing your audience better, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And stewardship is such an interesting term because it always felt fake to me. You know, I started by saying we do. I genuinely um, I don't know every one of our donors, of course, but a bulk of them I really do know and I know well. And when I'm texting or calling to see how they're doing, it is fundraising is like the last thing on my mind. It's not even on my mind. Um, I actually genuinely, tr- tr- deeply and truly care about them. But stewardship 
also, you know, in terms of an organization, it's important to me that those donors throughout the year that Crime Stoppers reaches them with emails, with updates. We have specific newsletters for different groups so that these donors know that we value them and that we're proud to share our work with them and and give them feedback and information on our growth and progress, knowing all along that it's only because of them we can do that work. Right, right. So let's talk about social media then, because social media doesn't feel like the same kind of personal one-on-one stewardship that that we've just been talking about. Is is social media then worth it then? Because it, because it, you don't, in my mind, social media doesn't let you foster those individual relationships, those those meaningful interactions that you have with individual donors. But but perhaps it does depend upon the audience as well. What do you think? I think social media is so incredibly critical, which is why I'm struggling now that um, all of a sudden our social media car- carriers platforms uh, are you know giving us some grief with just trying to share our basic content. But I'll tell you, when I took over Crime Stoppers, one of my big and that was in 2013. One of my big goals was what I I said to open the doors remove the drapes, let everybody in. And what I meant by that is letting them into how we work and what it looks like. When your organization does not give out a product, so we don't give out backpacks or medical kits um, or food, we give out information. It became really important to me that we we started to share on social media how one gives out information. So you would see me pictures of me or our team just doing research sitting in a computer you'd see we would share content articles we were reading we, meetings while we plan for events i mean anything we could possibly share we did because it gave our audience an a whole inside perspective on what it takes to even just share information it, it's a lot of work it's a lot a lot of work evening calls and zoom now it's zoom calls but conference calls and media preparing for media interviews and behind victim meeting. I mean, it's just, it's endless and leveraging social media to show that is huge. And so it's always been a balance for us to show the intangible, then to show results um, and then stories that might be compelling or that our, our audience and our audience, we have many different pockets. We, we talk to tipsters, we talk to victims, we talk to donors, we talk to media, we talk to law enforcement, stories that reach all those different pockets at different times. Right, right. And social media may, may, remains the most effective way to tell your story regularly um, with some serious measurable, you know, measurable impact as well. Yes, it really does. And it's very hard for nonprofits in this current climate if platforms now deem that they don't want our messages heard. I mean, it's really, really, really hard. It's really hard. And it's, you know, you sit here and shake your sort of, you know, you're just scratching your head thinking, I'm talking about how to help parents um, make sure their kids are viewing age appropriate content. Like I, it's literally nothing. Yeah. I just don't even know how to start addressing it, but yes, social media is, is, is really critical for nonprofits. I think. Let's shift gears a little bit. You have said to me that strategic planning is sometimes a myth. What do you mean by that? Well, when I took over Crime Stoppers, I, I was, you know, hounded on, you know, Crime Stoppers needs a three to five year strategic plan in three to five, three to five years, three to five years. And I said, I, I, I understand. Um, and I'll say that a plan for a, a definite project is critical. We built the first ever Crime Stoppers headquarters anywhere in the world. 
And we had to have a plan on how to, how to conquer that, a timeline, um, a pathway. But an organization like ours, strategic planning, I think, gets you caught up in the weeds when the entire world can shift in a moment's notice and it will leave you unprepared. So I've always told our team, our strategic planning is really big picture planning. I, every year I think like, where are we going in terms of messaging? Where is the world going in terms of messaging? Um, Do we want to focus on digital content or TV content? Do we want to be writing more? If we're writing, where are we putting it? Do we want to focus more on um, like, again, these social media platforms, big picture things like that are important, but in terms of like literal content, we you, we used to have like a 12-month calendar. We're going to talk about human trafficking in January and um, teen dating violence in February and child abuse in November. Well, what happens when uh, there's a school shooting in January that completely shifts focus right. or there's a massive um, organized crime ring that's you know, hit some of the biggest areas of town in February. I mean, you have to be prepared to shift entire focuses at your, the organization at any time. And, and that's why I've always felt these people who kind of say, well, map out three to five years. Well, no, because if I had done that, I would have wasted so much time. Nobody knew that COVID would hit and that I was going to have to change our entire program into a virtual platform with webinars and zoom sessions and digital shorts. I mean, it's just, it doesn't leave you as flexible as you might need to be. And I'd rather have always have room to have my eye on like big picture movements locally, nationally, and internationally if I need to, so that I have time to pivot the organization. Yeah, Yeah, no, I I have to agree. I mean, there's a certain, there's this statement that's, I think, erroneously attributed to Eisenhower that says uh, the plan itself is nothing, but, but planning is everything, right? So yeah. So yeah. you can, it, it's probably a good exercise to figure out how big the scope of a plan should be, but otherwise, uh, you know, it, it, the, the end result should be a flexible one. Um, but I, I think to your point that that's exactly right. You, you have to be able to pivot whenever the pivot's required. Yeah. And I think if you're so stuck on, well, I'm on section, you know, phase four of a strategic plan that has me literally looking in an entirely different direction. I didn't even look up to see what was going on or coming our way. You're going to be left behind quickly. Right. And, you know, to be fair to other organizations, there are some other organizations that don't have to have their eye on the horizon that way. Exactly. Yes. And that's why I say for us, for us, because we are a current events media driven here and now responding organization. Um, so for us, it, it, that's what works for us. For other organizations, it, this 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 doesn't apply at all. And and I think that's part of good leadership is recognizing what works for your organization. Fascinating stuff, Rania. What's what's on your agenda for the next several months? Can you can you talk about that besides fundraising? Yeah, fundraising is huge, but also how to get our message out. I, I think it's become a big issue for me. Um, public safety is not partisan. It's not political. It's not racial. Um, it's not rich versus poor. And for people who are summarizing it that way, they're missing what we're doing. Uh, for example, we just had a huge press conference on felony bond reform and a simple notion that if you've committed a violent felony crime and been arrested and been released back out into the community on a bond on a bail, and then go and commit another violent felony offense, sometimes within days or weeks, um, and are arrested again, 
right now in ma- many major cities across this country, you're just released again on bail. And then you go out and you commit another, like we're talking murder, rape, um, horrific crimes, and you commit another crime and you are released again. We're seeing this nine, 10, 10 times um, over the course of a year or two. And so we had a big press conference and said, this must stop. And the pushback I got was, you guys are racist. And I said, how, what are you even talking? How is it? Yeah. And they said, because you know that a white person can pay that bail. And, uh, and, and I said, but you're missing the point. We're saying no one should get a bail. At that point, you've committed three murders within you know a six month period. I don't care if you're white, blue, black, pink, brown, yellow, cream, it doesn't matter. We're, ma- we're making the point that a risk assessment should be done. You're, you pose a, a danger to yourself and others, and you need to be um, held while you, you, while, you know, criminal justice takes, it takes its course, but it quickly became so much about race. And I said, you're missing the point. It doesn't to us. It's not about that. It's no one should be released if they're that much of a danger to themselves in this in society. And then on the flip side, we're, you know, you have to have speedy trials. You have to have fair trials. You have to have fair punishment and we have to have rehabilitation, um, for those in prison. And again, it's about balanced, multifaceted conversations. And, I, and I'm working hard on um, on pushing public safety forward in a way that doesn't get boggled down with sort of national talking points and media polls that just hurt hurt communities and hurt conversations. Yeah, no, I imagine that's a very tricky game these days. It's, it's overwhelming. I've been waking up with a migraine and sleeping with a migraine. Oh, no. Um, yeah, but aging, wrinkly skin, white hair, <laughs> but it's but it's it's okay too. I I appreciate the challenge, and I'm not disrespectful of the conversations at all. I just I I think it's important to not get off track because it's a trendy thing to do. So we just have to stay stay true to the victim, to the community, to what's right, and even to those who commit crime. I think we do them an injustice every time. And I only and I'm only talking about the most violent offenders. I'm not talking about them. I'll always get the call. You know, you're so mean. There's the mom who stole a, a lunchbox, you want them to rot in prison. I say, you're missing the point. That's not at all what we're talking about. Um, you know, we're very sensitive to the many different, very different complicated issues that that are really layered into public safety and criminal justice. Right. Rania, I'm sure we could talk about this endlessly, and I hope we get a chance to revisit at some point and do another episode in the future. Um, if a listener wanted to be in touch with you for any reason, how would you suggest they do that? Um, follow us. You can follow me at the, at, I'm sorry, at the Runya report on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a big Twitter fan, but I am on it for work. Um, but I, I uh, respond quickly, or you can email me at r man at crime dash stoppers.org. I also have a website, runyamancarios.com and of course, crime dash stoppers.org. Um, is sort of where I pour my heart and soul into every day. So I'm I'm always reachable. LinkedIn, all over the place you can find me. Rania, thank you very much. I know you're very busy. So thank you for joining me for this episode of the Snapcast. Thank you so much for having me. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite your support of our efforts via Patreon. Please find us at patreon.com slash nonprofit Snapcast. In the meantime, we'll see you with another episode in a few days. This has been the Snapcast. Thank you for joining us.